Well, today we're wrapping up the first section of 1 Corinthians. The first four chapters act something like a unit, um, focused on a, a, a singular theme that we've been covering now for, for many weeks. Um, next week, we're going to take a three-week break uh, from 1 Corinthians um, before we jump back in in chapter 5. Uh, we're going to do a short series on um, our church polity or governance, um, how we are organized as a church, how we make decisions, where authority lies, all of those things, you know, the kinds of things you stay up late at night wondering about. But seriously, they are important things um, for the life of the church, and uh, we think it's good to take some time just to walk through um, at that, especially because the Bible has much to say about that. So we're going to do a short series on that, and then we'll jump back into 1 Corinthians. Up until this point in 1 Corinthians, you have probably noticed that Paul has spent quite a lot of ink on this one theme, this idea that God's power and wisdom is demonstrated most clearly, most emphatically in the cross of Christ, in Christ and Him crucified, this message that seems foolish and weak to the world. And I hope you've seen how relevant this has been to our day, to how we think about what the gospel is and how God works, to what we think of the church and what we think of success in the church, to how we view weakness and suffering, and also for how we think about leadership in the church. There is a lot for us to mine in these chapters, and encourage you just to continue to work through them on your own. Uh, but if I can frame what Paul is saying here in a perhaps different way than we have yet to kind of set the stage for today, it would be this. The cross is not merely something to believe in for salvation. The cross is also something that is to give shape and character to the whole of the Christian life. The cross is not merely a doctrine that we believe in for salvation, although it is that, but it also is a, a paradigm, if you will, to, that gives shape and character to all of the Christian life from conversion onward. Let me kind of unpack that a little bit. There is a way to live that embraces the cross, and with it, weakness, suffering, and foolishness now, holding out for glory to come, and there is a way to live that effectively denies the cross and denies any weakness or suffering or apparent weakness now, instead demanding glory. What we might call a prosperity gospel. Uh, Martin Luther called these two options, a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. A theology of glory, what Paul would call the wisdom of the world or the ways that the world works, is defined by raw power, impressiveness, never showing weakness, having great influence. And a theology of the cross, what Paul would call the wisdom of God, is characterized, at least in this life, by weakness, suffering, submission, apparent foolishness and loss. Now, the way of the cross doesn't deny the resurrection. 
It's not a kind of living or a way of living that denies that there is glory to come, that Jesus has won. No, it, it lives steadfastly in light of the resurrection, that victory has already been won, that Jesus is Lord, that all, every knee will one day bow to him. But just as Jesus overcomes and wins the victory and accomplishes his purposes through the cross, through apparent weakness and insignificance, the same often characterizes God's people. If you think of uh, Jesus' words before he actually took up his own cross, he said, if anyone would come after after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So this theology of the cross, of living life in light of the cross, of glory being preceded by weakness and suffering, perhaps insignificance, has been behind everything Paul has been saying here. It's what he is trying to correct in the Corinthians. And in this section before us today, we three see three characteristics of what might be called a cross-shaped life. Cross-shaped life. So we'll work through these. First, a cross-shaped life means everything is by grace, so there is no room to boast. A cross-shaped life means everything is by grace and there is no room to boast. So starting at verse 6, 1 Corinthians 4. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, so all that Paul has been saying here, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one of one against another. Um, that last phrase is a great summary of the problem amongst the Corinthians. They, were, they not only had different teachers that they kind of preferred and, and and were attracted to, they made much of these preferences. They made way too much of mere men and their power and their impressiveness and not enough of God and his power to work through the gospel. It goes on, verse 7, for. Now that word for is always instructive. Paul is going to go into another reason why their behavior, their living is out of step with the true gospel. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, and if, then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, that's a rhetorical question, right? What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Everything is a gift. And the implication there that he lays out is that there is no reason to boast in anything you have as if it's yours, as if it's something you attained, you secured, you earned. There's no reason to base your identity and worth and security and sufficiency on anything you have or anything you've done. So what does this look like? Well, one way that it often looks, that it can look, especially for for those of us in church, sometimes it looks like boasting in our spiritual maturity or our spiritual health or our spiritual knowledge. 
And this was true of the Corinthians, as you read through this letter. The Corinthians thought of themselves as having somewhat arrived spiritually. They, they had a lot of spiritual gifts. So like, well, God's working among us. Look at all these great gifts that we have, obvious signs that God is among us. They had great teachers like Paul and Apollos that they could make much of, which was part of the problem. They perhaps thought of themselves as a very impressive, respectable church, known in their community. We also can make too much of our spiritual health and maturity, whether that's our biblical theological knowledge, our empathy and compassion to others, our faithfulness to God and His Word in a society that is increasingly not faithful to God, our humility. But how ironic it is that we would become proud over our spiritual maturity when pride itself is a sign of immaturity. Right? No, no matter how gifted we are, no matter how much else we have, may have going on for us, pride is never justified. It's always a sign of immaturity. Because everything we have is a gift of God's grace. Everything we have, including spiritual giftedness or health, is a gift of God's grace. Another way, of course, that we boast is in our stuff, our material possessions, our comforts and pleasures and life, our perhaps opportunities and abilities and influence that we have in life. Our position, whatever gives us power and respectability and ability in this world. But all of that, too, is a gift of God's grace. None of it's ours to claim as an achievement. Um, God says in Deuteronomy 8, 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. All that we have is a gift of God's grace. And so, all of it is reason to give thanks and to live humbly and generously. Now, a bit more specific to the context here. None of what we have is reason to think of ourselves as different from others. One way that we sinfully create divisions in the church is by making much of, boasting in, the ways that we are different from others. We create divisions in the church by boasting in our stuff or our abilities as if they were ours. Actually, we can do the same thing through envy and discontent, right? We don't make much of what God has given us, but we do make much of what He hasn't given us that He perhaps has given, given others. And so we think that perhaps God must love us less and others more, and, and again, we set up these walls and divisions between one another. Now, it's interesting to think about how the world responds to inequality. And I think in general, the world responds in one of two ways. Either A, you are totally responsible for what you have. You are totally responsible for your possessions and opportunities. You've earned them, or if you don't have them, then you, you should earn them. And so take pride in what you have. Find your identity in what you have. It's yours. 
Or B, the world says that those with more must give to those with less until there is complete uniformity in all things. And so if you have much, you must give to those who have less. If you have less, you must demand from those who have more. But both of these operate from the same faulty, unbiblical premise that you are defined by what you have or don't have. Neither of these has room for grace. Neither of them leads to humility and thankfulness and generosity that the grace of the gospel does. And so the unity in the church among God's people isn't created by making sure that there is exact evenness, uniformity of possessions and wealth and opportunities, but by confessing that none of it is ours in the first place. That's the starting point. None of it defines who we are, none of it is reason to boast, and none of it is ours to hoard, especially when there are others who are in need. And we're enabled to do this. We are empowered and motivated to keep a loose grip on all that we might claim as ours because God has given us everything we need in Christ. We are freed from needing to make much of our stuff because we make much of Christ in whom we have everything we need, who is a better comfort, a better security, a better trust, a better source of joy and contentment. And all that we have in him, all that is ours in him is is by grace. Not because we earned it, but because he is good and gracious and purchased us with his own blood. Now, this part might be easier for us today because for the most part, we are rich. We have a lot. And it's easy to think of ourselves as generous, as not finding our identity in what we have, as, of course, we see everything as an unearned gift of God's grace. It's easy to think that when we have things. But the real test is how we respond when our things are threatened. Second characteristic of a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life means we willingly receive hardship and suffering, but are not defined by it. We willingly receive suffering and hardship, but are not defined by it. So verses 8 through 13. And this notice that Paul is using very biting sarcasm and irony here. Like, this is a, a kind of writing that you perhaps would not expect in the Bible. A rhetorical device. Paul says to the Corinthians, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so as a, another way to correct the Corinthians' position, he kind of gives in to it, right? He says, okay, here's what you want to be. Powerful, great, rich, like kings. Let's take that to the logical conclusion. They wanted the way of glory now, not glory through the cross. It wasn't enough that they be found faithful and vindicated on the day of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord. They wanted to be vindicated and great and respected now by the world. You have all you want. You've become rich like kings. And then he contrasts their position or the position that they would like to have with his own. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak as if their position in the world was an accurate sign of their maturity with Christ or God's blessing. And Paul's apparent suffering and weakness was a sign of his immaturity that he just hadn't really figured out how God works yet. As we'll see in a couple of verses, Paul will go on to make his point clear. He will tell them, be imitators of me. Follow me in the way of the cross. Cling to the cross, not only as this doctrine you believe unto salvation, but again, as this picture, as this character that characterizes all of life until you enter into glory. Theologian D.A. Carson puts it well. He says, in the context of these chapters, of course, what Paul wants them to imitate is his passion to live life in light of the cross. He does not expect them to suffer in exactly the same way that he does. He does not demand that they all become apostles or plant churches in distant lands. What he does expect of them is that they will imitate his values, his stance with respect to the world, his priorities, and his valuation of the exclusive centrality of the gospel of the crucified Messiah. And again, we think about the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, so what does it look like to follow Jesus? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so the question for us is, are we willing to not just have a cross-shaped theology, this doctrine in our heads that we believe, which is good, but also a cross-shaped life? And you can think about the life of Jesus, especially in the moments leading up to his death. If Jesus willingly gave himself up to be tortured, mocked, and killed by the sworn enemies of his people, if he refused to take the sword and refused to let his followers take the sword in order to come in and defend him and make this right, if Jesus didn't make use of all of his rights as the Son of God to vindicate himself in that moment, if he looked at those who were murdering him and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing, if Jesus ultimately put his trust in God 
and trusted that vindication and glory would come in the end. In this moment of the greatest injustice in the history of the world. How do we respond to injustices, to sufferings, to weakness, to the persecutions of life? And it's appropriate here to consider both natural uh, hardships that come just by living in a broken world, because a lot of Paul's examples here are just that, but also hardships that come about specifically because you are a Christian. As the broader context here is about the weakness and foolishness apparently in the cross and in the people of the cross. And so are we known simply for demanding our rights? Are we known for seeking to protect and help ourselves above others? Are we known for treating our enemies and those who might hurt us the same way the world treats their enemies and those who might hurt them? Or are we willing to be treated unjustly, to be overlooked and dismissed? Are we willing to be seen as small and insignificant in our moral stances, in our churches, in our political causes and alliances? Or were we merely fighting and clamoring for power and glory through whatever means? Now, now the, the easiest target here is, is the world of politics, right? I do think Christians should definitely get involved in politics. But maintaining a cross-shaped life as a politician, what we are talking about here in the political realm would look radically different than almost anything we see today, right? And that's the point. That's exactly the point. The wisdom of the world, the way of glory, is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of God and the way of the cross. How politics works in our world, and other areas too, and we're going to talk about our own hearts, but how politics works in our world is all about glory in the here and now. You don't admit weakness or fault, only if you're forced to by society and it actually does you good. You look to win, you look to be right, to gain power, to bring down your opponents. We, I think, see this in our own hearts too in the news we read. We tend to read and be attracted to news that makes our tribe, our convictions, look justified and shows all the hypocrisies of those who oppose us because we want glory now. But of course, this is about much more than politics. This is about how our hearts work. This is about the areas of our heart that still believe in a prosperity gospel, the theology of glory camping out in the areas of our hearts. When our health and wealth, our abilities, and opportunities, our respect, and our power, our winning streaks are threatened or taken away from us. What do we do? Do we deny that our rights and comforts are the greatest end, the most important thing, and take up our cross and follow Jesus as he calls us to? Is our primary goal continued faithfulness and patient endurance and trust in God 
or merely getting what we think we deserve. The way of the cross, a cross-shaped life, certainly doesn't mean that we enjoy hardship. It doesn't mean that we go looking for difficulty, but it does mean we value and pursue faithfulness more than comfort, more than ease, and we value giving witness to a glory that is to come by not demanding glory now. Third characteristic of a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life means finding and following spiritual examples based on their faithfulness, not their fame or following. Last section of, of the chapter here from verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So the Corinthians, Paul says, has met, had many, 10,000 guides in Christ, is how that could be, could be translated. The, the word guides here means guardians, tutors. Uh, someone that may be there to help and teach for a time, but not someone committed through thick and thin. Not someone to emulate over time as an example or mentor. Of course, in our day, it's very easy to find many guides. There's lots of teaching and teachers out there. We have easy access to the ministries and the influence of thousands of people, thousands of teachers. Um, it, it used to be that one received the bulk of their spiritual influence from their church, including from their pastors, but also from the, the church body. Now it is not uncommon, perhaps more common, that one receives the vast majority of their spiritual influence from places outside of the church, from the internet, from books, that is from people that do not actually know you and who you do not actually know all that well, and among whom it is almost impossible to follow their example. Now, there is some good in this. There is, as you know, a wealth of resources and teaching and devotional and theological material out there. And that's great. But this situation has led to a decrease in full life, all of life discipleship. The kind of spiritual growth that happens in the life of the church with spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters with real life examples to observe and follow. It is much more difficult to find this than to just find a teacher. It is much more difficult to find a spiritual father or mother or brother or sister to walk with, to learn from, and be challenged by. And Paul says this is what he 
the kind of relationship he has with the Corinthians. I became this through the gospel. Um, so you, they had a through the gospel kind of relationship. Paul had shared the gospel with them, discipled them in it. They had a relationship deeper than blood. And so we don't just need guides who are perhaps very gifted in their teaching, very thought-provoking, very persuasive, kind of connect with us where we are, but are not committed to us personally. We need through-the-gospel people whose lives we can emulate, learn from, ask questions of, who will be there for us, and we need to provide that for others. And of course, this is what we get in the church. This is, the, in large part, the purpose of the church. In the church, you get pastors, elders, who are not simply there because they can run an organization or they can teach from the front, but are also to set examples and to shepherd individually the flock. In the church, you get a community of numerous examples to follow and to learn from. You get friends and people to walk with through the gospel. People that you may not agree with on many things, but whom you do agree with that Jesus matters more than anything else. As a church, we try to facilitate some of this, you know, through various gatherings and, and groups and events and all of this, and we also just encourage you to just be hospitable, to pursue others, to welcome others into your life. But the purpose of all of this is not merely to, to gain information, to study a topic, to check off a to-do list and just feel better about yourself. The purpose is to grow in love of God and love for others with the help and example of others. To put this another way, the way of the cross means that you don't see your spiritual health as merely between you and God, merely as an individual, individualistic thing. It's not merely just an intellectual thing where you can just kind of download information from anywhere and that's enough. No, the way of the cross means you give yourself to observing and learning from and following the examples of real people in your life. You commit to a specific in-the-flesh group of people who get to know you and you get to know them and who are committed to you. And central to what Paul is saying here is that the way you judge a, the way someone qualifies for that type of role in your life, for a spiritual father, mother, brother, or sister, is not because they are impressive in the world. It's not because they have a large Twitter following, or everyone knows who they are, or thinks great of them. No, the qualification for a good spiritual father or mother or brother or sister is that they are faithful and that they know you. They're actually in your life. Let me end with this. Living in this way, living a cross-shaped life, embracing weakness and hardships, seeing everything by grace and not boasting in anything we have, but boasting in Christ, committing to community, 
This is not something we can self-motivate ourselves to do. We, we cannot just will ourselves to live in this way. No, we need the motivation that comes through beholding Jesus in the gospel. The gospel of Christ and him crucified by sins, crucified for our sin, and risen, conquering sin, death, and hell, reigning over all things. That is both our salvation and our motivation. In the gospel, we see that God is truly good and compassionate and merciful. In the gospel, we see that there is no enemy or power or threat or suffering or weakness that could ever have any victory over God or his people. And we see that just as Jesus was glorified, glorified and vindicated after the suffering of the cross, so will we be as we hold on to his promises. And so we're going to take communion now. And in communion, we are, we are not simply thinking about and turning our minds to something that happened in the past that has no relevance to us today. This, this event by which we are saved. No, as we've just seen, what we are recognizing in communion is something that continues to inform and shape and characterize the whole of our lives before God. Let's pray.